one, last one we did was uh, species specific on rubber boas, uh, which I'm sure we'll do another one at some point because there's about a million things that we didn't get to bring up that we wanted to in that podcast. Uh, but this one uh, is thanks to Travis. Travis was uh, was excited for this one, so I'll let Travis go ahead and, ahead and introduce what this one is about. All right. So, um, small history just on me for. A lot of people have heard my my basic intro story into reptiles was, you know, when I was five and I found a garter snake on the playground. Um, so that was my intro into reptiles. But I think my real intro into being a true keeper was when I picked up my first captive bred corn snake. Um, and, you know, that was 30 years ago for me. And at the time, I had been reading a book that essentially became my Bible. And that was this book here, Exotic Pets. Um, and the nature of what was written there stuck with me because in a lot of ways, it was before its time. Um, there was a lot of talk about, you know, naturalistic keeping and keeping smaller species and things like that, but also just being in tune with your animals. Um, and you know, this is my third copy of this book. My first one I destroyed utterly from use. The second one I loaned to a friend who then moved away with it. Um, so I've always had a copy of this book with me since, you know, way back when I was 14. And I thought that, you know, with the start of this podcast and thinking about the smaller side of the hobby and how these animals are very ideal for keeping in naturalistic style setups and stuff. And the way of keeping that was described in this book is how I had modeled myself back then and even taken into now. So I set out to find the author. Um, and that is our guest tonight. It is Monk Yun Ro. Please correct me if I mispronounced that. Um, at the time he wrote as Arthur Rosenfeld, he has taken a very interesting journey through his life. And I'm sure we can discuss that at some too. Um, but I thought that it would be nice to talk to somebody who had this viewpoint and this knowledge and mentality back then and, you know, discuss how it's kind of important and how the hobby in itself has kind of gotten a little bit away from the natural side of keeping and we've lost sort of the nature that really is probably what got a lot of us into this. So I welcome you, sir, and invite you to give us a little bit of story on you, your background, if you still keep, if you, how you feel about reptiles and exotic pets and stuff in this day and age. It was fun, fun to see that book. Um, I think it might have been my first published book. I've got 20 five or something now. Um, it's a long time ago. And a lot of it was based on my childhood, teen, early 20s experience in keeping. There's a great connection between being a Taoist monk, which is what I eventually became and the sensibility that was required to talk about small worlds and about being in tune with your animals and all that. Because 
Taoism as a philosophy or religion is really about nature worship. Not nature worship in, um, you know, a shamanic Amazonian kind of sense necessarily, although <clears throat> Taoism has really got shamanic roots. It's very old, you know, 5,000 maybe, maybe Neolithic times really. So possibly even before the agricultural revolution, before people got the idea of stopping their free and easy wandering lifestyle, which contrary to popular opinion back 10,000 years ago was not, not short, brutish and nasty, but rather uh, healthy and engaging with plenty of leisure time for language, sex, fun, uh, family. And our diets were much healthier and we didn't have any of the chronic diseases that plague us now. Nor were we plagued by the weapons of mass distraction that destroy our lives these days from the digital quarter for which pretty much none of us asked, but have been foisted on us. <clears throat> so if you think about it, having a childhood sensitivity or interest in the natural world, um, you know, arguably sparked by a, an encounter with a painted turtle on a river in Connecticut when I was nine um, and being a, a representative of Taoism in the, in the West now. Um, it, it, it's not a clear straight path because very few lives are, but you can trace the thread and you can see how one might be inclined in the direction of living in an apartment in New York City, but wanting to connect with nature and having only a concrete jungle around them, but creating a little vivaria in, in, in my, my room, my bedroom in Manhattan. And outside, you know, blaring horns and sirens and filthy air and violence and anger and inside, close the window and boom, I'm in the Amazon, you know, surrounded by, it was kind of an escape. I, I, I might, I might be a little bit on the spectrum, at least in regards to this kind of thing. I don't like crowds of people, uh, fast things, noise. I, I would much rather spend time with my turtles than I still keep um, than, than with a lot of people I can think of. So, um, you know, th there's, there's that, but, but I'm, not, I'm not so sure that one ought to characterize the urge for peace and quiet and engagement with the natural world as some kind of disorder. Uh, I think that connection is actually very human and essential. And rather than diseased, I think it's probably correct. And moving far away from it is, is where the disease comes in. Just an opinion. Um, I could agree with that. <clears throat> So there is, I, I do, I do still keep animals. I, I, I have, um, I have a small turtle room in my home in Arizona. 
Um, turtles were my first love and have been the most enduring interest I've had in, in the herp world, although worked at the San Diego Zoo and the Bronx Zoo and have, you know, not, I guess, inconsiderable experience with pretty much everything, but uh, turtles are kind of where my heart is. Um, they don't lend themselves as much as a Williams eye gecko or something to, you know, a, a planted terrarium, at least most of them don't. But that doesn't mean that you can't make a small world for them that, you know, could theoretically be called a vivarium. It's just not a very elaborate one because they're messy. Yes. And they might be, even though the species I keep are small, they might be a little bit larger than, you know, the delicate species that would ideally populate a really glorious, you know, 200 or 300 gallon vivarium in which you could duplicate it a natural setting. But, you know, in lieu of that, I, I live in the mountains of Arizona and, you know, bobcats and lions come up to my patio door and stare at the glass through at my dogs through the glass and um, peccaries gather outside my window uh, to eat pumpkins that I put out for them. And so I'll have a squadron of peccaries outside my window. Uh, yesterday, in fact, there were 10 or 12 of them grunting and devouring the, the pumpkin. So, you know, in a way, I guess I'm in a vivarium that I've created for myself with where my house is and how I treat the surrounding landscape and my engagement with it. I, I'm not a TV watcher and I don't do a lot of online time. And I, I would rather be looking out at the mountain or taking a hike. So, you know, I, I put myself in the vivarium. Not everybody can do that. You know, lives are different, choices are different, circumstances are different. But if you can't do that, then creating something for other living creatures, which you can nurture. What kind of turtles are you keeping? Same function, really. Um, so I, I've been doing turtles really, really, really a long time. And I've had, you know, 55 years of turtle keeping. And I, I have um, kept, uh, I think when I wrote my book, Turtle Planet, a couple of years ago, I took an inventory of the species that I had either kept or worked with in a zoo. Um, and, you know, there's about 300 species of turtles in the world. And I kept over 100 of them. So... That's a you know good percentage. That's incredible. Uh, I'm not I'm not a, a, an animal dealer and I'm not in the business, so it's not I'm not counting things that you know like came through my shop or something. I'm talking about animals that I actually worked with. Um, I I made a, a walk-in vivarium for myself in my backyard in Florida um, by setting up a, a yard dedicated to giant tortoises. So, you know, uh, they were the denizens of my yard and I, I was the kept. Um, and, you know, every, a couple of times a week, I'd drive over to the local produce guy and I'd take his throwaway, you know, in, in big stinking boxes back, back in my truck. And it, it, I would, I would feed 
if if these guys hadn't been generous, generous enough to give me that food for 20 years, I, I you know, I wouldn't have been, it would have been, you know, six figures a year to feed them. Um, and I raised Galapagos and Aldabs from little, you know, little guys to, wow. to huge tortoises. And I was one of the first people to breed the Burmese black, fair eye, um, figured out the water cycles that they needed. And, um, hurricanes kept coming through and knocking down my fences and you know then i'd have to put my phone number on the backs of 400 pound tortoises as the ocean carried them away and try to hope that somebody would call me and read the phone number you know uh, it was a lot of drama now um I, I don't have uh space or energy for that and those kinds of animals really although some people do it they're not really particularly well suited to arizona um so too dry, it gets too hot, gets too cold. Um, so in the last five or six years, I, I keep mostly Kuora um, because of my lifelong tie with Asia and my frequent travels there for my mission work and for my training as a monk uh, and to spend time in monasteries and so on. I am, um, you know, I'm very familiar with the Chinese and the Southeast Asian landscapes uh, and habitats for that genus of, of Asian box turtles. Um, there, there's only a few of them. There's, it's not a big genus. But what's interesting about them is, among other things, they are, uh, most of them are critically endangered. Some of them are functionally extinct. Uh, this is the the penchant for Chinese medical practitioners to catch them and grind them up for medicine, what they call medicine. Some of it is for food, um, you know, they're a delicacy. Uh, they're farmed. So when I say extinct in the wild, there's some that are gone from the wild, but still exist in farms. Anyway, that whole connection of combination, the intersection of Asian, rare, in some cases, challenging to keep. In other cases, not so much. Um, you know, drew me. And when I when I left Florida and had to part with my beloved giants, some of which I had for over thirty years, I uh, I thought, well, this would be a way to make some small worlds in in my house uh, and give me a piece of Asia in Arizona. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So are you working with mostly non-aquatic stuff then? I know you said the Asian box turtles. Um, I know aquatic species tend to give people the biggest headache from the keeping inside. Yeah, so that's that's a really interesting question and a good vein to mine, I think. Um, many of the species of Kuora are aquatic. Um, when, not all, when... We say aquatic though, I, I am in the minority of keepers in this area who have a different take on, on this maintenance issue and how to keep these animals. So because I have trudged around where these things come from and seen their habitat, I, I, I think of them as like glyptomies. I think of them as wood turtles, like North American wood turtles, which are good swimmers. Um, they, they live in the literal, you know, 
So they live on the edge between streams and ponds and, and dry places as babies. And they, they burrow under the detritus along the bank of a water source. And then, you know, they go far afield as they get older and older, they eat, you know, more and more, become progressively more herbivorous, which is, by the way, not necessarily true of Cora. Um, but when you look at their feet, you know, they look like reasonably webbed and they have an aquadynamic carapace shape. So, you, you know, you might take them for um, being... Um, purely aquatic, but, but they're not. So one, one example that see, people seem to have a lot of trouble with is Pan's box turtle. And that, that I, I believe it comes from Anhui province, which is rather north central uh, China. There's, they also come from Hunan province. Hunan is, um, is the province that is the source of a martial art called Tai Chi which I've studied and practiced for 40 odd years. And the original, the originating village for that martial art and for many important things in Tao's philosophy is in this province, which is cold. You know, it, it gets well, well below zero in the winter and snowy and so on. But the summers are actually stiflingly hot, like a Georgia summer. Um, and Pan's box turtle has been seen active, you know, in, in below zero temperatures, like we see in the Northeast, uh, painted turtles swimming under the ice, right? You know, they're collo colloquially or pharyngeally perspiring. They can't, they can't get up through the ice. So they're, they're just in there. Um, sometimes we see musk turtles doing that too. But the presupposition is that because they can swim, you know, you, you got to set them up in water. And, and what I've found is that up until they're about four inches, I keep them in bussing tubs. <laughs> and the bussing tubs have a few inches of water in them, not fully deep, right? I put an aquarium heater in there and I keep them warmer than most people do. And some plastic plants under which they can hide. depending on how young they are, if they're baby babies, they get fed every day. As they get older, they get fed a couple times a week. And the routine is that once they've left that stage, I, I keep them terrestrially with a, with a good sized water bowl. And they do great. And people say, well, how can you keep an aquatic turtle you know, on the ground? And understand that these animals are often found far afield. Now, this is one of the more aquatic cora. There's less. Things like uh, Mauhatii, um, Galbinifrons, uh, Picturata, and so on. Those animals, Beretii, uh, are really very terrestrial. Uh, so again, I keep those the way I keep the Penai until they're a few inches long. So there's no, I can keep the temperature very well controlled. I give them some, a little rock they can crawl out, which they usually don't, but if they need to thermoregulate or if there's a, a thermostat disaster, this only has to happen to you once to lose animals that expensive uh, that you care about. Yeah. Have one thermostat run amok and you know cook your turtle 
and you, you realize you got to give them a way out if something happens. And then you find them on the rock and you touch the water and you're like, oh my God, it's so hot. And once once they're past a few inches, they, they go terrestrial. That reminds once me they're... a lot of like uh, the eastern box turtle. I think a lot of people don't realize that eastern box turtle babies, uh, when I worked at a zoo, we had a large eastern box turtle exhibit and then they would just have babies on their own. We'd find a lot of the babies in the water uh, when they're little and then move to land as they get older because obviously those legs do not look like they're made for water when they're adults. But as they're smaller, they definitely look like they're made better for swimming. So, you know, some of this has to do with thermoregulation and some of it has to do with hydration. And, you know, there's this inverse rule of the smaller animal has a greater surface area compared to its volume than a larger animal. This is, you know, this is one of the ways that my former Yale professor, who's now passed, John Ostrom, figured out that dinosaurs were cold-blooded. And he did the arithmetic on how something the size of a brontosaur could be an ectotherm. And he calculated that because the mass of the animal relative to its surface area was so great, there could not have been time in the day for something like a brontosaur to warm up. By the time it got to operating temperature for a herp, night would fall and we'd be back in that cycle again. You with me? Yeah. Mm -hmm. but, but if it's small animal, they heat and cool quickly. So they are, they have the advantage of coming up to temperature more briskly. <laughs> they also have the danger of becoming torpid too quickly. So keeping a steady temperature, which is a little counterintuitive, you know, we like to give reptiles a, a temperature gradient to choose from. But in the case of little ones, you know, you're more, you're better off erring on the side of stability than variability, because sometimes they can get torpid quickly and then they can't get to where they need to be. And you... so, anyway, what's worked for me, and that's all I can really say, is have some understanding of the environment that they come from, their own natural history, where you find the babies, you know, underneath mulch, and the. Eastern, you know, any terrapini, really, uh, not not just the Eastern, but any of those uh, North American box turtles, he, the, some of the Mexican ones too. They they're in or close to water because they're worried about drying out. It's not that they need to swim; it's just that you know the further they get from being comfortably hydrated more dangerous it is for them. And they have a little bit lower set point so they can tolerate some lower temperatures and not a, you know, a tropical slider or something. Anyway, um, so pretty much all of that genus of Quora that I keep, I keep as I've described, which is when they're little, they're in these very simple bussing tubs. But, you know, the bussing tub between the heat and the plastic plants, which are the plastic plants cover the bussing tub. So they have a, an intricate environment to feel secure, to stick their head out, to go back in. Um, and then I find as they all get older, I move them depending on the species, some faster, some slower. Marohadii comes out of the water, you know, pretty quickly. Um, Geoemitis, Bengleri, and Japonica, those animals come out of the water, you know, faster than something like a Penai or a Macordai. Um, 
different genus, but related. Uh, but I still think, I don't think of these enclosures as cages, right? I think of me trying to duplicate with the greatest simplicity what they need, be mindful of my own limitations of time and energy, especially as I, I've gotten on a little bit. So um, I, need, I need to keep things simple. Keeping things simple in, in the vivarium is actually one of the big challenges because you know it's kind of human nature. Not only, um, let me just add another gecko or let, let me just try another little ground tea it or something in here. You know, we have this habit of, you know, accumulating, many of us do. You know, you, you think how cool is this and then you want another one. And, and then you suddenly find that, you know, you have 43 lizards in, in a, you know, in a, in a 40 um, and you add a 44th lizard and you find a lizard dead. And it, it doesn't necessarily be, isn't necessarily the one you just put in there. Right. I'm, I'm just making up numbers. Right. But mm -hmm. no, I understand to, completely. Yeah. Show the point. So, you know, you discover pretty quickly that these environments have a, have a carrying capacity, just like the real world. And if you exceed that, it will correct. Just like the earth is doing to us now with COVID and nuclear war and fundamentalist religions and anything that reduces human population. Um, too many of us, we act like a cancer, you know, on the planet. We're not a good good species from the standpoint of planet Earth. You know, it's not it's not really happy to have us anymore. We've ruined everything. So you know, too many of us, the Earth fights back. The environment will fight back to reestablish harmony and balance and an equilibrium, which you know are all very very Taoist ideas. Well, and it's it's an interesting idea the uh, how you're talking about with the turtles, and yeah, I I do agree that it. A turtle is not necessarily a a fully intricately planted cage type animal, but at least sort of in the vein of you know our overarching concept behind this podcast of the pint sized, you know these smaller species like you're talking about are very very much better for people to be considering keeping than you know. Sulcatas or Aldabras. Um, and, and that's yeah. a bit like, you know, everybody sees the little baby Sulcatas, which are, you know, you've got these little animated tennis balls and they're so cute and they're so precious and they breed like rabbits. They're wonderful and babies. So, yeah. And so they, they get sold off like they're the perfect little pet and nobody realizes you're going to have a 200 pound three foot across animal that you can't stop it when it decides it wants to break out of your yard, destroy your basement. Cause you thought, well, I can just keep him in the basement over winter. I mean, there's, there are pictures that go around the internet of guys who've lost their toilets. Oh, yeah, and everything, the bathroom you know, is the worst place. They'll go yeah. right through but, your you know, wall. Right. You know, garage, so these smaller species, even though you can't necessarily put them in an elaborately planted terrarium, like you could, you know, a Williams eye gecko or something, you can still create a, you know, a pen or have something simplistically naturalistic, like the raising tubs that you have, or, you know, if you have something outside for them, you know, some people are still able to keep like redfoots outside in Florida sure. in, you know, 
pens that Absolutely. have got sunken down so that they can't dig out, you know, barricades. But these animals are infinitely better because these turtles are relative to their much more massive cousins, the pint-sized side of the turtle world. Yeah, so a few thoughts. One, um, I, I, I wanted to finish the thought about like how to maintain if you have a few buzzing tubs, right? Yes, please. Because that, that really gets onerous quickly. You know, if you have 10 or 20 buzzing tubs, you, you better be retired because, you know, That's or doing it or doing it as your full-time job breeding, you know. So one, one little trick that I've learned is uh, when feeding time comes, I, I have to do two things for these animals, right? And only two, once I have the setup, only two things. One is to keep the tank clean, the tub clean, and the other is to feed the animals. So what I've, what I've come to do is I take out the plastic plants, put them in the sink and I rinse them. When the plants are out and the turtles are just in a couple of inches of water in a tub, I feed. I leave the food for an hour or two. Earthworms, superworms, bloodworms, and like eight different kinds of pellets. Occasionally I'll give some fruit, depends on the species. Uh, I will eat uh, things like pears. Um, and then there's, all there is is I started out with a messy tub that needed cleaning. And now I have a messier tub that needed cleaning, but it's only two hours messier, right? So the feeding and the cleaning are one thing, right? You feed and then you dump, wipe out, fill up and put back. This is very efficient and simple. But regarding the smaller turtles and, you know, there are also some tortoises I wouldn't say I would recommend the Egyptians because they could be a little touchy, um, but they're very small and they do do well in indoor desert kind of vivaria. The, the question is, you know, getting the hang of them because depending on where you are, temperature relations can be an issue. And, you know, they're a little bit unexpected in the sense that they're a desert animal and they come from a hot place, but it's a coastal desert and it has cool fog and humidity come in and out and they find micro environments. I've, I've been where they are um, extensively. So, you know, they will find a little bush that gives them just the amount of sun protection and a little extra humidity that they need. And, and they will live their life like, you know, mostly around this bush and they'll wander off and they'll come back. So people make the mistake of setting them up like too intensely hot and bright and xeric. Um, anyway, Egyptians would not be a recommended species for someone, you know, first trying to do this. Uh, Hermans, um, really great for this. You, you know, you get a Rubbermaid 50 or 100 gallon uh, feeding trough. The 50 is, I don't know. 
three or four feet long. And, but, you know, it's only it's a short tub. Yeah, you can get it as like a tractor yeah. supply or something like that. Yeah, that's right. You get them at <clears throat> stores and that kind of thing. The, the issue is you, you don't want to order them online because the shipping will kill you. Yeah, they don't fold up. <laughs> yeah, no, don't do that. So, you know, you have to find someplace, drive with, with your friend's pickup or whatever and get it and bring it home. There are other ones that are metal that other companies make. If you get a metal one, though, um, I recommend you uh, seal it before you use it on the inside with polyurethane spray. And then you give it, you know, a week to vent uh, off. To vent yeah, off. Air out. You don't want your animals around that stuff. And then, and then when you put a substrate in there, and I like to use a mix of, so I, I do this for the Panna, I do it for the Mauhadii, uh, I, I do it for my little Western Hermans. Um, I make a mixture, it's a, it's a little bit different for different species, but it's more or less a mixture of some soil. Uh, I prefer to err on the side of caution, so I usually get, you know, sterile soil, not, you know, fertilized potting soil. And you, know, you never really know what, what chemicals are in those things. Um, but I use cypress mulch. Um, there's a racket going on about that, which I'll tell you in a second, you may know. Uh, and then some sphagnum moss. And, and I'll make a mixture of this. And then I will choose, I, I'll get some hide boxes and I will choose a humidity gradient. So let's say I'm using that 55, I'll, I'll put a 150 watt spot on one end so it gets really nice and toasty right under that. Remember to drill a hole and wire up your heat lamps so that if they fall or your dog knocks them over, you know, burn down your house while you're at work, you know. Sadly, that kind of stuff happens. Um, so there's a UV source uh, at, at one end along with the heat source. The other end is dim and dark and I'm, I put a bucket of water in there and make it nice and damp. And the, the tortoises, if we're talking about things, something like the Hermans, you know, they, they, they don't get much bigger than, you know, five inches long or so. And they make a, you know, a credible indoor, you know, vivarium animal and you can plant, you know, carefully don't choose something that's not good for turtles, but, um, you know, you can make a naturalistic environment. It's got to be simple, but it can still look like, you know, not a vision cage with a snake in it lying on newspaper, you know, not that. So the other thought I had that was out of my head is you were talking about, you know, the giants versus the little geckos and stuff. There are all kinds of wonderful little geckos, knot um, tails. And, you know, there's a lot of them. Uh, I, I'm a fan of, of geckos. They're well, I mean, even fat tails and leopards are well suited to terraria. They breed easily, they do well. Um, but, but just bear in mind that the same human appetite and urge that might lead you to want a, you know, 300 pound turtle can also, and we touched on this earlier, but can also lead you to just, you know, keep on buying. And, and, and have too much stuff, you get compulsive. You read about a cool species, and you know, I'd like to stick that in there. 
and then you have a disaster, right? So disaster is you exceed the carrying capacity or you introduce, hello. I love you, Dad. Love you too, buddy. <laughs> well, that was, that was good. Um, or, or, you know, you, you end up introducing the species mistakenly eats the other one, you know. So that, that kind of stuff can happen. But the thing is to, you know, watch your mind and watch the disquiet in yourself when you're setting this stuff up. Do you have kind of an acquisitive, compulsive relationship with what you're doing? And mm -hmm. that, that will lead to your losing animals and having a bad time. This hobby, this hobby leads itself to a lot of people that are like that, that, that collector mentality. And I think a lot of people go through that, yes. uh, getting a lot because they won't want everything at the beginning. And then two, th one of two things I think happens. I think uh, it crashes and they get out of it or it gets hard and they realize, okay, maybe I need to fine tune this. But a lot of people have gone through that whole, and I know I, know I did, of, yeah, I'll take whatever I can get. And also the whole rescue thing. Everybody finds out you have reptiles, you become the person everybody wants to give the bearded dragon to. And you yep. end up with like five of them. Uh, and so I think it's, it's very, some of the most important information you can give to someone getting into the hobby is slow down and research. It's very research. easy to learn about something new and decide you have to have it without even knowing how to take care of it. Like that baby sulcata. Exactly. Yeah. I think we've all known people who've done that one. Um, I did have a question in terms of your, um, your turtles, both as babies and when you move them into the terrestrial habitats, are they, um, are you keeping them singly or are you keeping them in groups? Well, that's, that's actually another awesome question. Um, this is, happens to be, so my pet thing about not all so-called aquatic turtles need to be kept purely aquatic all the time. I'm, I'm not talking about soft shells or something, but things that are obviously 100% aquatic. You can't put a fly river turtle in a, in a terrarium. I, I'm, I'm not saying that, but so that's one thing. And the, the other pet thing is there is this idea, and I, I see this so much, and it sort of is heartbreaking, I think. Um, turtles are plenty social. And the idea that you know, we think of a leatherback roaming the oceans at 1,200 pounds, you know, eating jellyfish at 1,000 feet down in frigid black water and, you know, not seeing another leatherback until it goes back to its beach and, you know, mates and lays its eggs and then it's off on its solitary thing again. That, that may be part of the leatherback's natural history, but it's not, it's not the way turtles live. In, in most of the world, most of the time. They are part of ecosystems and they interact with lots of things, including other turtles. So when a dealer tells me, you know, this um, high-priced box turtle I'm back. has never seen another turtle. And, and they're telling me that uh, perhaps to reassure me that it doesn't have any parasites or cryptid or, you know, hasn't been expired yet, whatever. It's clean and I can introduce it after quarantine, you know, without worry. Captive bread, even. It's like raising a monkey or a human in a box. There is something missing from turtles like that. 
they haven't had a chance to develop the part of the brain that comes from interacting with other living things, with other turtles. And I, I am not in favor of this at all. I, I, I do not agree with that approach. So, you know, I think a lot of dealers do it because they don't want any disease to spread. They, they have an investment in, in something like the core that, you know, they're, they're not going to risk that. Mm-hmm. They don't want nipped tails. There's a big thing. They don't want turtles, you know, biting each other's tails. If turtles are biting each other's tails, it means you're not feeding them. Period. End of story. Unless you've got 1,600 of them in a 40-gallon tank. Okay. But, but I mean, on any reasonable circumstance, turtles don't like to eat each other's tails. They do that because they're starving and they're looking for something that moves that looks like a worm and I'll try that. If you keep them well fed, this is not an issue. I have never... Knocking some wood. I have never had that problem, and I keep turtles together all the time. In fact, I don't any turtle by itself. So you're saying they really need that social interaction with other turtles, and that does make sense because when I have seen turtles in the wild, they're um, they're usually in pairs or groups. Five on a log. Yep. Sometimes on top of each other. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, and I see them interact. I watch them interact with. Uh, at feeding time, particularly, I have a pair of little Malhadii right now that are, you know, the size of not yet a half dollar, bigger than a quarter, little babies. I feed them together. I have some cute videos of them, you know, chomping on each end of the same earthworm, you know, until they come together nose to nose and like, all right, now what? You know? And and so you know, you have to know your animals and you have to keep track. That same group of Mahadi, I have a, I, I like that species and I've got a colony. Um, I have one male. I don't know, you know, how else to express this. It's not my best uh, clergyman uh, vocabulary, but you know, he, he's just a dick. And, and, <laughs> and, and so, you know, he, yeah. he, he bullies you know, the other turtles, and he will bite them in the face. I had to pry him off one's leg. He wouldn't let go. Once they get started eating, he just will attack them. He'll go around to the front and give them a full-on bite on the face. I'm like, what do you do? Really? (laughs) And in the terrarium, which is a a hundred uh, tub, where they have plenty of room and they all separate, you know, there's very little interaction. Unless I put in, you know, a bunch of earthworms and they start coming, you know. So what I do is I feed them out of the tub. And I feed, you know, five or six of them in the utility sink. And I give them the same mixture of great stuff, except for the dick. (laughs) Who just, you know, he eats in a little plastic box on his own. Fantastic turtle, great eater, very personable, loves to look you in the eye, check you out. You just don't want him eating around the other turtles because he, he loses his mind. Just doesn't play well with others. <laughs> he doesn't play well with others. So you you know you learn this about them. And and you know, that's what it is to be a good keeper. You know, you, you, mm-hmm. you notice stuff like that. And I think sometimes uh, especially with a smaller species, because we can keep them together adds to the enjoyment to be able to watch that interaction. Um, the, the snakes I keep, I, they're all singly. Since we started keeping dart frogs, you know, those are in groups and kind of like a fish tank. It is, it's really fun to just watch 
And, you know, like you said, when you feed them, they'll congregate and things like that. But even at other times, you will see them interacting with one another. And it really, it, it does make them a more fun pet in that regard. You know, I, I've been to the Choco in Colombia. I've, I've been in a lot of interesting places where there are dart frogs. And I like the idea that I can get down on all fours and kind of like be part of that little micro hidden world, that quiet, moist, glowing, beautiful place which is really just so much better than watching Netflix. Yes. And, and, and I can be there out there and feel like I'm part of that. And then, you know, take some non endangered species that are just as pretty and behave the same way and put them in, you know, a beautiful vivarium in my, in my living room. So, you know, I've had dart frog vivariums and, I have a really nice um, Kaiser Eye Newt uh, set up right now, um, oh, wow. which is really beautiful. It's, it's an aquarium, but it's set up just especially for these newts with certain kind of filtering stuff I figured out how to do. And I've kept a group of them alive for a while. I haven't bred them yet, but they're, they do great. And that is a very engaging aquarium slash vivarium experience because you know, they're, they interact with each other. They interact with you. They watch mm -hmm. you as you walk by there. You know, they're, they're smart. You, people don't understand how much this is, I guess, another pet thing of mine. People don't understand how intelligent these animals are. We have, we're tremendously species centric. I've written, you know, I have 20 something books and I've written extensively in various books about the idea that there was something, I hope I don't offend any of you or a listener with this, but it's just the way it is. It's just like talking about people being a cancer, you know, it's not that we're a cancer, it's that we behave like one, which is our choice and we don't have to. Um, the cancer cell has no choice. It does what it does but we, we can do something else. There, there is this idea, which I guess comes from the Abrahamic faiths. And the idea is that somehow the creator made all this for us. <laughs> and this is our toilet, our playground, our dust bowl, our Whatever. It's ours to do with as we see fit. As we see fit. And as we see fit is to completely destroy it, right? To kill everything, pollute everything, cut down everything, cut the top off everything until it's a shithole. And there's nothing left, which is, you know, we're well on the way. And Eastern religions don't see things this way. And Taoism definitely doesn't. And it, Taoism was kind of the original conservation movement and I guess you could title this episode the cursing monk um, <laughs> anyway um, I like that <laughs> but but you know um, if if you have that view then you've created the separation between you 
and other sentient beings. And that, that just isn't a rational position and it's not supported by science. You know, they have nervous systems and they have brains and they feel things and they recognize each other and they have moods. I think it makes people feel better to assume the animals don't have all of those things. Uh, even when it comes to just like uh, hunting or owning, which none of that I'm saying is wrong. I just think a lot of people without thinking about it need that separation to feel okay. Where uh, instead of coming to terms with, all right, well, it is how it is, but you can still be a part of nature. So here's something that Hitler and Stalin both had in common. Two of the most genocidal maniacs in the history of humankind. They had this technique that they used to get ordinary people to behave in extraordinary ways. So if you want to train one of us to butcher women and babies, spear them in the face and throw them into ovens, you have to train their minds to see those human beings as not human beings. You have to somehow brainwash your troops or your police forces into actually looking at other people of a certain type, whether it's a Jew or a gypsy or uh, someone who doesn't look like you, you know, in China, some different whatever you have to train people to see those people as rats or vermin that need to be extinguished somehow right so to your point of creating a separation or a connection the creation of a separation when you take it to the extreme that i just cited you see clearly how pathological that is you see how sick that is. And the more separation you train in people, the more mental illness and bad behavior you're going to see. Conversely, if you go the other way, the more you cultivate compassion and sensitivity, which are cornerstones of Taoism and other religions, the greater the sense of connection so that what we're questing for, what we're yearning for, what we have a hole in our heart that we need to fill is the compassionate caretaking action that makes us feel connected as part of a larger thing. My son is a field biologist and sometimes he takes me to task for keeping any captives at all. I, I, honestly, I don't keep very many animals anymore. Just have a few. But I explained to him that it's the act of caretaking, whether that caretaking means crafting a beautiful vivarium or whether it means, you know, dangling a worm and so a turtle takes it out of your finger. Whatever that caretaking means to you, for me, it's, you know, four times a day, I wander into the turtle room and just take a gander. 
I want to make sure nobody's flipped over. I want to make sure water temps, I stick a pinky in the water, you know, to make sure no, nobody's heater is going awry. I put my hand under a ceramic bulb just to make sure it hasn't burned out, right? Make, still making heat. This kind of stuff, just, I, I notice if there's some lassitude in an animal, like what? That one doesn't look like it's really, all the others are alert and that one's kind of eh, right? So, so, you know, why is that? And what do I have to do now so I don't lose that animal? Um, better put him in a little hospital tank, you know, get a break out of busing tub, put him by himself. Something's going on in this tank is not working for him. Give him different food, you know, bring him back and then see about yes or no, do I reintroduce? This kind of stuff is very routine when you are in the compassion mode. Compassion just means feeling with. And that is actually, when I thought about what I could offer you guys who probably know a lot more about this than I do now, I, I thought, well, you know, the perspective of someone who sees this as a compassion exercise, who sees the caretaking as a healing of the spirit for the person, the rest of our lives may be you know, far from nature and pressured and stressed in ways that we didn't ask for or choose. Would rather not have, but maybe we're in a circumstance. People get succor from a plant, you know, from building a vivarium and caretaking animals, whatever kind of vivarium it is. This will lower your blood pressure. It will soften your mind and in a good way. It will open your mind. And honestly, unless you're involved in something like, you know, the rescue of an endangered species, which is really going to die if you and the five other guys on the planet stop doing it, that's an extreme circumstance. Very few of us are in that situation. But otherwise, the primary thing really is for you. It's the, the caretaking act that makes you love them and nurture them. There's, there's, benefit for you in this. And I think a lot of people really don't talk about this. The conversation has become very mechanical. Yeah, how big, how many wants is that to you? What, what kind of plant do you use there? You know, what do you use for substrate? Do you use any vermiculite? You know, these kinds of conversations are okay, they're good. You know, you gotta know the mechanics. What, like, what are we really doing? Why would we bother with, why are four guys on a Saturday night sitting here talking about this? You know, when we go see Spider-Man or something, you know, there's, there's a reason why we do these things. We are drawn, some cord in us is drawn to this kind of thing because it has a resonance and it has an importance to connect with the natural world. I guess that's the most important thing I have to say. Well, and I agree with that. I, I think, uh, and kind of hit back on, uh, you talked about your son who got onto you, who gets onto you every now and then for keeping stuff in captivity. And, and to go a little more extreme, because it's something that our hobby faces a lot, is uh, groups like uh, PETA and stuff like that who feel that none of us should own any of this. And I've always said that uh, I think it's very hard to ask someone to care about nature if they can't see it. Uh, and as coming from a zoo background, you know, people, they hate zoos. But if you put a zoo in the middle of a city, those kids have never seen a lion a lion is nothing to them in reality until you put them, you know, four inches of glass between them and you're eye to eye with a lion. And that connection with nature at that point is much different than telling them lions exist and you should care about them. 
and then to take it to our hobby side, it's very hard for someone to understand these animals until you have them in your house. I mean, people don't understand how interactive and how animated a small tortoise can be. A small little three or four inch tortoise, there's a lot going on there, but people don't see it until it's in their house and they're up close to it and they see it on a daily basis and they make those connections. And those connections are important. And I agree. We, we talk so much about the, uh, you know, the recipe for how to take care of an animal, but there's also the human side of you got to want to take care of the animal. Some people get into them, they go, I want a lizard or whatever it is. They get it. And then we all know, you know, shortly afterwards, they either dies or they get rid of it because there wasn't a connection there. They just, they wanted something uh, without actually understanding what that something was. They wanted it for the wrong reasons. Exactly. Yeah. And there's also, there's a very large, you know, and this goes back to that sort of collector mentality that you were talking about before is, you know, it has, that mentality has sort of also been very dangerously wet into the pyramid scheme of if you own reptiles, you must breed reptiles to sell reptiles to buy more reptiles. And, you know, the, the efficient way to do that is with, you know, rack systems and things like that. So it's all about getting more animals into less space to feed that pyramid scheme mentality and feed that collector mentality. And, you know, again, I think that's the great thing about our, our pint-sized reptile podcast. And this conversation has gone so wonderfully better than I anticipated with you for that, because it, I think these smaller animals give us a chance to step away from that, you know, more things in a smaller space because, you know, it takes time. It takes a little bit of space to have a nice cage that you take the time and the effort and yeah, you don't cram 70 geckos in there and then cram one more in and watch them start dying. You know, you, you end up like me where I have a two foot by two foot by 30 inch tall, fully planted, lighted, decked out cage. And it has a single morning gecko in it. And I hardly ever see the little bugger, but I know she's in there. And every once in a while, I watch her skitter along, but I have this beautiful piece of nature. And, you know, when I go in and care for my snakes, and yes, I do have some of my snakes in tubs because my snake room is small, but, you know, I also have snakes in eight foot long cages and the snakes themselves are only two foot snakes. So, you know, I'm, I'm balancing my my collector mentality, which I think we all have to some extent, but I'm keeping that, that connection with nature. And, you know, frankly, sometimes I do just feel so much more comfortable sitting there looking at the morning gecko cage, sitting there looking at my fully planted calabar boa cage. And even though I don't see the calabar <coughs> boas, but maybe once every two weeks, you know, it's got this hardscaping and these large log pieces and some plants growing in there and just that small bit of nature, you know, opening the cage to spray it down and you get that that petrichor smell of wet, damp earth and humidity that brings you back to 
you know, this, this natural connection and this, you know, I want to make sure that everything is balanced there. You know, I don't want to open that cage and smell rank decay and no. rot and stuff. You Jesus. know, definitely not. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you mentioned uh, Calabar pythons and, and also uh, you referred to two foot snakes. I, I, I heard you say at the beginning that you'd done something on rubber bows. I, I, I love, I've, I've kept both those species in, in Terraria and Vivaria over the years. And the idea that you wouldn't see the animal all the time is how it is in nature. Yes. Right? So any field herper knows whether you're driving a desert road looking for rattlers in July or you're out trekking around in the mountains looking for a mountain king snake because it's like 62 degrees and drizzling and this is when they love to come out. You can do it 40 times and not find a bloody snake. And then you can do it one night and find six snakes, you know. The way that nature works is you, for a herper, is this is exactly the experience. You open the door of your vivarium, there's the cork bark, you know, there's the plants, and, and there's a calabar or a rubber bow or something else in there. And you, you see him the day he's out. You don't see him every time. And that, that's how it is. But we live in such a speed and greed. Give it to me now. I have to have everything immediately. I can buy anything. No patience, no knowledge, no research, no anything is required. Just, you know, reach into your pocket and produce the coin. And you can be immediately gratified. We've been trained to this. Not our own fault, by the way. And not a condemnation of people's character. We've been we're being trained to this. And so what you're describing to me is an antidote to this societal global disaster that we're living through. It's a powerful antidote. Not everybody can go get a, you know, a home in the mountains. We have responsibilities, we have other objectives, whatever it is, you know. Not everybody can retire into nature. Nature can't absorb everybody doing that. Cities are grotesque, but they're entirely required. If planet Earth is gonna survive us, you know, that's a resource question and a management question. But for our spirit, you know, th this is such a beautiful soul-filling thing to do with your time and developing this compassion for other living creatures, other sentient beings. And then, you know, with any luck, although you might, you might not see it for each other. Um, honestly, there's no more important mission. So one thing I, I wanted to talk about was just the drastic difference. So you wrote uh, exotic, uh, exotic pets, you wrote your book in 87. Uh, the keeping of reptiles and, and, and animals in general then versus now. There's been such a swing. I, I know I talked to a lot of people that kept in the 80s and all, and uh, it's funny. Naturalistic enclosures were a thing definitely in the 80s. People were keeping this small version of nature in a tank with an animal. And then at some point, 
in the 90s to 2000s, we, we got away from that. And it's funny because now we're getting back into it with all of this uh, bioactive and all that. And everybody's acting like it's new, whereas it's something that's been around for a while. We just kind of got away from it. And so I kind of wanted to ask you how you feel about the changes you've seen from, you know, when you first wrote that book to how the whole exotic pet industry is now and how it is as a hobby and how keeping is now versus then. So despite the fact that I wrote a book called Exotic Pets, I find that the phrase exotic pet industry hits my ear poorly. I, I don't like the objectification of living creatures into a business with things in racks. And I, I don't know that I, I support all that, even though I have, you know, some small, I don't, I don't have anything in racks, but you know, the turtles, you don't do that really. Some people do it. I don't do it. Um, but I, I, it's not a business for me. And I think, you know, we would be better off if it were not a business. Do we really need, you know, 1,574 morphs of ball pythons so somebody can make some coin because someone sees something that they impulse purchase for $12,000? I, I, you know, this is not, to me, the best side of us. And I've, I've been... I, I wish, honestly, that this were not the case, but I've, I've been to many, many reptile importers and, you know, seen what we do to these places where, you know, native people, you know, make a dollar a month and you offer them, you know, 10 bucks for a radiata or something else that's rare and should be left alone. And, you know, could feed their family for a month with that. They go and they get the tortoise and they, you know, and this is exploitation on some level. It's not just exploitation of the animals, it's exploitation of the people. It reflects a social and cultural problem with, you know, why are people living on a dollar a month? And why is the only route to it elephant out of it, elephant ivory or whatever? These are big social issues, but somehow and they're economic issues. And, you know, I've written a lot about these things. I, uh, maybe when, when you're ready, we can talk for a minute about my books, perhaps before we sign off. But I think this, you know, the industry side of this, as unpopular as this comment may be, is, is not the best side of it. And I think we've been talking about what is the best side, of it, which is why, Travis, you know, when you wrote me, you know, it, it caught my attention that this this take on on reptiles is not the take that I normally hear. I've been on one or two other reptile podcasts over the years, and and we haven't. I, I try to steer things in this direction a little bit, but what people really want to hear is, you know, how can I, you know, get twenty percent more eggs and a few more bucks for my rosy boa morph or whatever. You know, I, it's not. I, I don't believe that there should be an intersection between medicine and money. And I don't believe that there should be an intersection between animals and money. And, you know, if you're eye rolling at the monk for saying this, okay. But it's the monk's job, right? To, to be reminding us of such things. 
instead of getting sucked into the frenzy. So, you know, there is a much more meaningful way to engage and enjoy this hobby that is constructive and helpful and consciousness raising. You want to make a few extra bucks, get another job, go 10 bar. Taking living creatures and materializing them this way, objectifying this way. I, I, I don't mean to sound, you know, judgmental or harsh about this. I just, I just don't think it's right. And I, I don't find that judgmental or harsh at all. I think in some respects, I do think there is a bit of a paradigm shift in the hobby um, where, you know, people who have been in it for longer, for a long time, they do start to see that, that sort of burnout side of they get tired of chasing, you know, like you say, the morphs, the more, the better, the faster, the harder. You know, I, I have seen this evolution with a lot of people, you know, I've kind of gone through it myself. You know, I went through the collect a whole bunch and hoard a whole bunch. And then I realized, you know, yeah, I, I had 150 ball pythons at one point and it, it's not what I wanted. And, you know, I have significantly cut back on my ball python collection. And do I still breed for morphs? I'm not sure why I do, but I'm breeding for those morphs for me because, you know, I, you know, like I said, my first snake was an amelanistic corn snake. I have always had a passion and a penchant for albinos. They have always caught my eye. And so all of the ball pythons that I have now either are visual albinos or carry the albino gene because I want to continue working with that albino paint job. And it's, you know, it is for me and not for I want to make the next $50,000 albino type of thing. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I like there's one ball python that I have that doesn't have any of that. It's just a normal, regular, wild type ball python. And, you know, most people find out that, that you've got a wild type and they're like, why do you have that? That's, you know, like the most worthless animal there is out there, but. It's the rarest form of ball python there is. Right. It is. It, you know, this is where they came from. And this is, you know, you should appreciate that animal. Um, you know, rubber boas, you know. James and Jason also keep rubber bows like myself. I, I think it's wonderful that you have kept them as well. And, you know, I, I love them. Yeah, they're they're yes. wonderful animals. Naturally, know, and, they're a very interesting animal. Yeah. And there are, you know, I. My Audubon book. The you dog eared on that page with the rubber bow. Yeah, you know, that picture right there. That was the picture that I saw. And I was like, I, that animal is beautiful to me. And, you know, you show most people just a solid olive green brown snake and they're like, that's, yeah, it's a fantastic it's, snake. It's ugly. And it's like, I, it's not no. ugly. It's, you know, it's yeah, eyes know, it's are not incredible. A it's scalation is incredible. I, the yeah, way it survives, where it survives. And there it's, you know, it's that uniqueness of them that, that draws me to them. I don't, I don't need a 
massive, wonderful, exotic paint job on them. You know, I love the Calabars. You know, yeah, they're they're kind of that cool color with that black and pink modeled, but yeah, orange. to me, it's cooler that they, you know, that the tail looks just like the head, that their scalation, their skin is like scientifically it is some of the toughest skin in the animal kingdom you know also that's what really draws cool me to when them. you hold them and they go through your fingers and they hold on to you they're very very strong for their size oh yes they're incredibly they're really strong for their size interest. so look I, I just want to make um, a, a qualification I, I didn't. I was hoping not to insult you. I didn't know you. Oh, I did not. Well, I didn't feel insulted at all. That's, so, that's so, what I was trying to get. So at with I, want to, I want to draw what I think is is an important distinction between the collecting and um, acquiring urge and the breeding for type urge. So, because I don't believe actually that those are the same urge. Um, and, you know, some, I, I, I get all kinds of holidays, especially actually, oddly. Um, but, you know, I, I get a lot of people reaching out to me for my counsel on one thing or another. And a lot of the unhappiness around this particular season, we're recording this just before Christmas 21, has to do with the, um, the American way, uh, buying stuff you don't need with money you don't have, and thereby enslaving yourself to a credit system and, you know, working more and living less and all that for your stuff. There, there's a reason why people are so easily manipulated into a culture of constant acquisition and compulsion. And the reason is that almost everybody has this emotional hole that shopping or getting momentarily fills. You, it's like you have an ache and you take a hit or you take a drink or, or you, you take a pill you shouldn't be taking and you get momentary relief from this ache. And then whatever that was that you used wears off and there's the others. And, and there isn't any addressing of the underlying problem, physical, spiritual, emotional, you know, all three that make so many people feel so empty all the time and so ill at ease in their own skin that they have to be constantly doing the equivalent of stuffing their faces, whether it's by making purchases or filling up their shelf or I, I don't I, I don't think that anybody would argue that this is a particularly good strategy. It's not good for your mental health. It's not good for the animals. It's you know it's just not really. And, and to have to burn out to discover that there's no succor to be found. You know in 
spending 40 hours at the mall before Christmas and putting yourself in hock for the next half a year. There's also no great satisfaction to be had in doing this compulsive stuff that we've been talking about. Plus, you know, you're adding a sentient being to the equation who has nothing to say in the matter, who may or may not survive it, who goes from here to there, you're creating stress and so on. So that that's like, you know, we could talk for hours about why our, our world is that way. The seeking to make something beautiful or interesting or fascinating through selective breeding, to me, is not that same urge. It's something else. And I, I, I'm not as concerned about it, honestly. Other than the ethical thing of using a sentient being to express your desire for a paint job. That, that has some moral quandary for me. But as far as what's burning inside of us, you know, what, the reason I enjoy this conversation so much is that we're talking about the substance of things in this fancy that, you know, people shy away from this talk. But how much you get for that more for like, you got one, I can, you know, I, got, I got this, I got me, you know, or, or how big is your alligator snapper? Um, which eventually is going to end up, you know, in the culvert behind your house because, you know, 300 pounds, it'll just take half your arm off. <laughs> the whole arm. That's not a, not a practical pet for your kid. You know, not when you got all. it was big, right? It was adorable. So, it was a baby, a little tiny thing inside of a tank. And, and I've raised, you know, I took care of the big one at the Bronx Zoo for, for some time. It was a huge. I love the big animal. ones. I think it may even still be there. I haven't been back lately, but you know, fantastic, incredible. And you know, the, the little worm, but, but when the head is this big, the worm is no longer so small. It's not like a blood worm anymore. You know, <laughs> now it's like a, a worm the size of your head. It's not, it's not, it's not the same thing. Yeah. I was a zookeeper in Louisiana. We had plenty of big ones and uh, they're adorable. And so you watch them like just snap bones, like chicken bones in half as they take a bite oh. out of something. So, you know, appreciating without necessarily having to have is another thing. So earlier you mentioned, one of you mentioned PETA. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I got into it with the president of PETA. They, they were uh, endorsing some of my work. And, and I liked the fact that they were endorsing my work and getting the word out. I appreciated that. But I bumped up against, and I don't remember if it was Travis, if it was you who said this about, you know, things being black and white. Sometimes, you know, there's gray. A lot of times there's gray. And, you know, James, what you asked or what you brought up about increasing people's sensitivity and sensibility about nature you know, there's a downside to, to the keeping or the exhibiting maybe, but there's an upside to the education and the consciousness raising, you know, especially now in the world where we need, we desperately need people to care. Yeah. Because, you know, people not caring is the road to hell. There's just no, we, we don't really believe in hell, but you get the point. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not going to a good place. Um, some, some, 
Ms. Newkirk would not brook any captive breeding of anything. So no captivity and no captive breeding. And I remember saying to her, but if we don't, then the reality is this species and Pan's box turtle is a perfect example. will simply cease to exist. And then where are we with your ethics about protecting? Because there aren't any to protect. Um, and, you know, she dismissed that. And, and I, I, I ended up getting a little, you know, I don't get pissed off much anymore, really. It's kind of my whole thing is being not that and, you know, equilibrium. But I finally remember an exchange of emails with her where I said, if you would like me to educate you on why you're wrong about this and how there has to be an accommodation, you know, to extreme viewpoints, because the alternative is extinction. I'm, I'm happy to have that conversation with you. And, you know, she, there was no reply. She's like, so you, you can't, you can't strike those. You strike those extreme positions, you know, no, nobody wins. And you just have to ask yourself, can I be guided by you know, my conscience here? And what I, if I take my own self-interest out of it, my own gratification out of it, you know what? What's the right? What's the right thing to do? Well, I I have a friend who works at the Bronx Zoo, and I did ask him if the snapping turtle is still there. Since you brought up, you didn't know if it still was around. He said he doesn't know of a specific one, but he does know that there are a few that are scattered around the zoo, and they have been there as long as he has worked there, and he's been there for at least ten years or so. So. My suspicion is that you, your, your, your snapper that you remember may still be there. <laughs> it may. They live a long time, and this was in the '70s, so you know we're talking 50, well maybe almost 50 years ago. I, I don't know. Um, it was big then, um, so maybe not that exact one, but maybe, yeah, it's kind of cool. Mm -hmm. So I think the, from everything we've talked about, the big thing we talked about balance earlier, uh, and. I think a big balance that the hobby needs is uh, so the three of us, Jason, Travis, myself, we, we do keep stuff in racks, but uh, I think the thing is you need to have a respect for what you're keeping as a living thing that you respect uh, versus monetarily. And that's an, that's an issue across the hobby as a whole, unfortunately in the last 20 years or so when it's really become monetized and there's, big money to be made in certain situations. I think the, uh, the respect of the animal has gotten lost in a lot of situations, unfortunately. And, I'm, and I like to see that we're getting back there. A couple of hobbies that I think have done a pretty good job at it, uh, fish keeping and dart frog keeping, I think have done a good job at it for a long term. When you see some of those groups on Facebook, they're not so much showing you pictures of their animal as they are the tank and the setup and what they've done for it, which I think shows you that they're not just going, look at this animal that I bought or this animal <laughs> I made showing you look at what i've done for this animal and look at how amazing this is and so i think the reptile a lot of the reptile hobby needs to get more towards that well and towards fish i mean you'll put a two dollar fish in a, a two hundred dollar tank you know we'll put a two hundred dollar snake in a five dollar tub that's true <laughs> yeah, yeah that's that's one of the complaints that we often hear is 
you know, this yeah. hobby will do the exact opposite of what the fish keepers do. And, yeah. you know, yeah, you know, James is very much right. The, the dart frog keepers have been very, very good at kind of keeping that same sort of fish keeping mentality where, you know, yeah, the, the dart frog itself may only cost 10, $20, but you know, they put significant money into the cage and the sump pumps that they need to help the cage and the misting systems and the plants and the lighting and everything. So it's you know, the cost of the cage and the housing and everything they put into it vastly yeah. out costs the price of that animal. And it's not just about the price. It's about doing the right thing for the animal. Yeah. The cost of the animal is not driving how much they care about the animal, which unfortunately yeah. does happen in a lot of situations. You know, I, I was thinking about this question of monetizing. The the amounts of money that we will pay for certain things because they're rare or because they have a, a you know a stripe on the head and the other one doesn't. You know, th this kind of thing is completely and totally nonsense. Irrational, crazy human construct, nothing to do with the creature or the natural world. I, I have <laughs> a, um, a particular example of this that just boggles my mind like every day. And that has to do with the aforementioned pan, Pan's box turtle. So there is a sister species, and at times they have been classified as the same species. Um, of that pan's box turtle called uh, oracapitata, the golden-headed or yellow-headed box turtle. So the, these two box turtles, I, I wish I thought of this, I, I could show you this easily. Um, these two turtles are the same turtle. <laughs> they're they're the same turtle. They're morphologically identical, their behavior, the same turtle. One has a head that is green with amazing stripes. The other has a head that is yellow. And there are two varieties of that yellow-headed one, and one is a little more brightly banana yellow than the other one. The banana yellow bright one is worth a fortune. The less bright yellow one is a bit cheaper. And the green-headed one, which is rarer, and to my eye, significantly prettier is worth less. You know, 30, 40% less or more. And, you know, as time goes on, maybe, you know, the yellow head is, is hatchling is, you know, $8,000. Green headed is $2,000. It's the same turtle. And, and, Utterly subjective, which, so I, I look at the two of them and I think, you know, I, I, I've seen a lot of herps with yellow on them. It's not, I mean, we've got all kinds of red foot tortoises and yellow foots. Yellow is not like such a super interesting thing by itself. They're pretty, you know, but the green is much more interesting. The green is a shade of green that is not seen on any other turtle. And the way it's striped, and it's like a way cooler looking morph. Let's call it a morph. 
utterly and completely the same turtle. And utterly and completely just a question of more people like the yellow than the green, so the market. Da, 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 da. But in fact, there's an argument that the green one is, is like there's just fewer of them. And there are fewer of them in the wild, if there are any at all, whereas the other ones, you know, there's some. This kind of stuff makes no sense. Yeah. And, you know, an animal doesn't have more or less value because of what the market is. You know, it's not a widget. It's a living creature. You, you know, I can take this little keepsake from my dad, you know, and I can say, well, look, you know, this little box has, has some value because, you know, it, it's made in England and some, you know, porcelain factory that is a name thing. I don't, I don't really know anything about this, but I guess it has some value because it's made in a famous porcelain factory. I, I, honestly, I, I don't care about porcelain. I don't collect porcelain. I don't know anything about porcelain. But the idea that I can find one at Target that looks just like it, you know, for five bucks. And it's functionally the same thing. A little box that opens and closes and can hold some stuff like your paper clips. And, and it's made of porcelain. And that could be five bucks and something, a special one from a special place could be 50,000 bucks. Okay. But if you start applying this kind of thing, I mean, when you, you buy into that, if you're crazy enough, you're going, yeah, I got to have the $50,000 one. This whole way of thinking about animals as stuff and objects is, is, is not the way. And if we could move away from that and into more, a more profound experience of the keeping and a better understanding of what it is in us that wants to keep and use these things as a way to learn more about the natural world and sharpen against the whetstone of our keeping experience, the blade of appreciation for the natural world. And I, I, I think that has value, but I, I, I push back at using living things to make a buck. Travis, the whole reason we're here is that book. And you have the author of that book. So I was going to ask if there's anything you want to ask since you've carried that book around with you for what, 40 years or 30 something years now. Is there anything you want to ask? I mean, it's less about the asking. It's more about just the opportunity that, you know, one, this book, what it taught me and that, you know, in some way it has directed me to this point where I am able to have this conversation is, you know, it's something I never would have thought I could have had. You know, I, when I reached out to you, I, you know, I was, I was very unsure that I had found the right person. Um, you know, as I mentioned, you're, you know, your life's journey has taken you in a different way. So when I Googled Arthur Rosenfeld and exotic pets and everything kept pointing me back to this monk, I was like, I, I really, <laughs> I don't know what, what to think here. Um, and you know, the, 
the only reason I did decide to reach out was you have another book, Turtle Planet, which I I, I have it, you know, I, I hit the order from Amazon and I'm waiting for it to show up because that definitely intrigued me as well before I even knew that it was indeed the same person. I, you know, I saw that and I thought that there's at least a good chance this is the same individual that, you know, that I remember who, who wrote this, this book that has helped guide me to where I am. So it's just, it's truly an honor to be able to speak with you tonight. And I, I greatly, greatly appreciate your time there. And, you know, it's, I, I feel a lot of the, your thoughts are very important and should become more a part of the hobby. Um, I would like to give you an opportunity as well to, you know, speak on some of your, your journey or some of your other books. If you would like to take that time, you know, you have been kind enough to share your thoughts with us. If you had more that you would like to discuss. So I'll, I'll talk to you a little bit. I, I'm, I'm less of an interesting subject, um, but, but there is, uh, there is something I want to respond to your kindness with this, that, you know, I have two sides you know, to my life. One is the side of, you know, person to person service work where I'm teaching or doing, you know, mission monk stuff. And there I get, you know, these wonderful, like we're having right now, a, you know, a personal interaction you know, before the pandemic, there wasn't so much of the Zoom kind of thing, but, um, but I, I get to hear and see you know, the consequences of my actions and, and I can be satisfied or gratified by that, even though part of the whole Taoist thing is, you know, no attachment to outcome. You just do what you think is the compassionate, frugal, humble thing. And that's, and then you do it and you move on. And what happens after that, you know, it's dropping the stone into the pond and you, you, can't control where the ripples go or what they're going to move or what effect they'll have on people. But at least when you have person to person interaction like this, you, you, you have some sense of whether you've gotten your point across or whether you're um, being reviled or appreciated. In the case of the writing side of my life, writing books, you know, which is what I've been doing with myself most of my life is a very solitary pursuit. N nobody, you know, who is um, a tremendous extrovert and needs a lot of people contact and adulation all the time uh, can become a writer because it just requires that you spend too much time sitting in front of a screen with a keyboard and making stuff up. And mostly especially as I've watched other media come to the fore and books, which are my chosen milieu, go away to some extent, or at least have to compete with a lot of things that didn't when I became a writer. I, I didn't foresee, you know, the gaming universe or internet surfing or something when I became a novelist when I was in my 20s. Anyway, my point is that it usually entails quite a bit of faith and disconnection from, I, I don't hear from readers that often. 
Yeah, so sometimes I get letters from the publisher forwarded. You know, somebody wrote me, they like my book, they hate my book. I, I'm I'm the greatest thing. I'm a jackass. You know, I, I, I get I get this kind of stuff a lot. But to hear that, you know, something I wrote all those years ago, closing in on 40 years ago, is still having rippling effects on on someone of another generation. You know, that that's that's really a rare and gratifying thing for any writer. Um, so I thank you for that. Well, and I downloaded one of your fictional books today, so I'll have to let you know what I think after I read it. Which one did you get? Uh, the Cutting Season. It got really good reviews. <laughs> yeah, people like that one. I enjoy uh, reading, uh, and I read mostly uh, fiction to just kind of relax and calm down at night. So I added that one to the, the queue. <laughs> So I would, I would recommend, especially if you like it, um, that you try Mistress Meow. Uh, okay. You can also get that on electronic version of that. Um, I'm going to make a note. Mistress M-I-A-O. We're, we're about to re-release that book as Wasp Warrior because we released it right at the height of the pandemic and there were distribution problems with Amazon and you know, we didn't make the impact that we wanted to with it. So we're, we're like putting it out again, but you can still get it as meow for now, if you want to read something. So that's more recent work, but I have like five more in the pipeline now because, you know, during the pandemic, I couldn't travel and teach as much. So I've been writing a lot. So there's, there's, there's a lot coming. Um, uh, Mad Monk Manifesto. If, if people were interested in the ideas that we talked about here, uh, that is the bitter herb, unsweetened and undiluted. And some people pucker at drinking it and others think, you know, I'm a hero for, for having the balls to say some of that stuff. Um, there's people who want to kill me over that book and other people... I think it's good stuff. Um, Turtle Planet, which you mentioned, uh, Travis. I, Turtle Planet is um, the bitter herb of the Mad Monk Manifesto, but it's like the herb is put in a strawberry milkshake. And, and so it goes down like, you know, it's really fun and you didn't even know you were taking strong medicine until the end when you go, huh? Wait a minute, <laughs> right? So, so that I think is a more artful. You know, I, I I try to write novels that have no overt hit you over the head kind of you know message, like, but that make you think about things differently. And I like writing stories that are set in ancient China and in the modern era, and like. You have two storylines that sort of come together. And the reason I like doing that is because it shows the relevance of some of this ancient wisdom to today's world. So if we have this talk about environmental devastation and vivaria and cultivating your sensitivity to stuff, and then you find out that Taoism was like, wow, that was the first kind of organized environmentalism. And that was, you know, Thousands of years ago, on the other side of the world, people were thinking this way. 
about conserving resources and harmonizing with the environment and stuff. Like what happened? How do we get where we are from that? You know? So if you see the way ancient things and modern things come together and, and I construct these books so that the stories, you know, compel you to turn the page and you start to see them come together like this. They, I, I, w- I would be lying if, it were, if I said it would be, it, it's easy to, to do those. You know, it's, it's a lot of work. It hurts my brain. But um, I, I think they're good. People, people seem to like them. I get, you know, prizes for them and whatnot. I'm but certainly looking forward to reading brain. some. Yeah, you have to see if, if you like that kind of stuff. You know, there'll be people who listen to this and, you know, roll their eyes at the little bald guy. And then there'll be people who think, you know, this is an important thing to hear. And, you know, I, I can't I can't control what happens when you put the ideas out and that's all you can do. And you'll get people thinking. and I think that's important, too. Yes. Get people thinking. We are not, I, I guess this is my parting thought about this. Maybe about everything. We are not living in a world right now where deep thinking about anything is encouraged by the forces acting upon us. So whether it's our corporate masters who have an interest in our eyeballs to monetize them online, whether it's politicians, whether it's people trying to sell us stuff at the grocery store with packaging and sexy colors and whatnot. None of those people have your best interests at heart. They have their own agendas. You are, you know, a cog in the machine to them. The more you think deeply about things like we have been doing tonight together, the more you are doing something that the machines, whether they are what James called the exotic pet industry or other myriad forces in the world. The more you think deeply about any of these things, the more you will come to some different conclusions than what you are being told about how things are. And, and nobody wants that because it'll cost everybody money. But it's up to us to decide if that's how we want to live. Do we want to be sheep or do we want to think for ourselves and figure this stuff out? Can we find a way, and I believe the answer is yes, to do what this podcast is about, which is to nurture and enjoy and create that avoids as much of the abusive and ugly side of you know, trading and sentient beings as possible. And, and I think the answer is yes, or I wouldn't keep a turtle if I didn't think so. Or I, I, I don't want to be a hypocrite. So I think there is that balance. And I think there is that opportunity to engage our passions and fascinations while contributing to the larger world of consciousness about such things and doing it mindfully and with compassion. I think if you can muster that, you're really doing something good in the world. And if you ignore all this and treat animals like widgets, you're not. Fair enough? Yes. Yes, sir. Yes, I think that is, that is a great way to wrap this up. Uh, 
It was definitely, I didn't know what to expect going into this. Um, but I am very happy that this, this happened. Uh, I, I think all the information that is shared is information that people need to hear. Um, and, and not just here, it's information that people need to think about, uh, which may be kind of the bigger difference. There's a lot of things that people hear and then it just goes. I think a lot of this takes a deeper thought. Um, this whole idea of why one, why, why we're doing what we're doing and, uh, and how we can do it better. So thanks Travis for setting this up. That was awesome. And, and thank you for coming on and sharing everything you did. Uh, if, yes. And thank you for your insight. We really yes. appreciate it. If, yes, if anybody wants to learn more about what I'm doing and more about these ideas, you can just Google Monk Yunro, Y-U-N-R-O-U, two words. Uh, my website is monkyunro.com. Um, I will, if you guys edit this and send it to me in a timely fashion, I will put it in the holiday issue of my newsletter, which goes out to a decent sized list. Um, if, if and when I get it from you, I'll put it in the next one. Either way is okay. Yeah. I don't know how you work it, but anyway, I appreciate the opportunity and the invitation and uh, spending a piece of the holiday season with, with all of you. Thank you. Uh, and we thank you very much for thank your you. time. So thank you, sir. Take care, everybody. You too. You too. Well, that was, that was a very interesting interview. Yes. That was fun. I really enjoyed that. And uh, like you said, I didn't know what to expect at all. So that was, it was very enjoyable. Yes. And I, and I apologize anybody listening to this, when you get to listen, there's like three spots where my internet decided to just poop on me. And, uh, I'll have to go back, and luckily I have the recording on StreamYard and on the device. I'll do some editing and some wizardry, but everyone should hear, hear everything because it like cut out at two of the most important conversations he was having, and I was like, you got to be kidding me. But uh, but I came back in, y'all were having it, and it was still recording it, so I know it exists out there somewhere, and people will hear it. Uh, but yeah, I, that was, like I said, didn't know what to expect, but it went into a direction that I was very, very happy to be a part of. Yeah, it, it was not how I was initially thinking, you know, but it, it very much went into a way that I think may have been better overall. Yes. I was pleased that he uh, was so able to lead and I mean, he'd segue into next topics very, very well that we didn't have to ask a lot of leading questions because I personally don't know anything about him. So I thought <laughs> I liked that he did that on his own so yes. well. <laughs> well, and one thing that I thought was very interesting was his, uh, his respect for the animals and this and that. And then the way he keeps his small baby turtles is some way that some people go, well, you shouldn't do that because he's keeping them very simplistic, but it's simplistic for a reason. Uh, and, and more simplistic for a reason to help take care of them better, which I think is where a lot of this gets lost. Everybody assumes that if you have whatever animal it is, the only way to properly take care of it is to have a 55 gallon tank with leaves and dirt and plants. And that's everything that's got to go that way. But it's not the truth. And that's, as we'll learn going through this podcast in different episodes, we'll learn that's not always the best. It's not, not that it's not a way. It well, is there's just, not always just one way. Yeah. You know, what's exactly. good for me might not be good for you. We have different lifestyles, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, to the people that would criticize the way he's doing things, I would encourage them to stop for a moment and think less about what he was doing and look at the species he's doing it with because you know not that it's necessarily a proof of, that he is better but these are not common species yeah. these are not species that 
everybody is doing this with. So if this methodology is working for him, for these species that are more difficult than he built, it sounds like, yeah, you know, that, that he, he very much is this kind of driving force behind perhaps being quick to judge on, you know, that's not the right way to do it is you're, you're just jumping to your own personal belief in your own expertise and ignoring the bigger picture, which again, kind of goes back to how this whole show sort of evolved is there is a bigger picture here that we all need to think on. Mm-hmm. I agree. And uh, as much as we started this podcast, we're really going, you know what, we're gonna do 30 minute to an hour long episodes it has not been the case the last two episodes. So uh, maybe just yeah, if you're, if you want a shorter episodes, uh, just listen to it on the way to work and on the way home. And that's technically two short episodes. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but uh, so let's go ahead and wrap this up. Uh, Jason, if people want to get a hold of you, what's uh, the best top way? Topline Constrictors at uh, gmail.com or Topline Constrictors on Facebook. And Travis, go ahead and give us your weird email. Asplundii <laughs> <laughs> uh, at gmail. That's A S P L U N D I I at gmail. You can also find me at snakes and bakes, snakes underscore n underscore bakes on Instagram, and I'm just Travis Wyman on Facebook. Not the motocross racer. <laughs> and if you want to get a hold of me, it's simply underscore serpents on fa- on Instagram, simply serpents on Facebook, and you can find pint sized reptile podcast on Facebook. We have a page on there. Uh, just look us up, add us on there. This episode is probably coming out somewhere towards the end of January because we already have two episodes but when it does come out I hope that everybody enjoys it as much as we enjoyed uh, being part of it and uh, our next episode will be a species specific episode but I felt this was I agree with Travis this was a very important episode to have and there's a lot of information shared here that I think can be used not only for small herps but for keeping in general and and I think the uh, there should always be this idea of what can we do different when it comes to this hobby and that's what this episode kind of pointed towards. What can always be thinking about what you can do. That is it for me. Thank y'all for listening. Thank you too for being here. Um, Thank you. And we will talk to everybody next time. Goodbye. See you next time. Good night.